Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II podcast. And I'm happy to announce we are back together, all as one, back again. Joining us, as always, the one and only Mr. Henry Sledge. Henry, how are we doing tonight? Doing okay. <clears throat> Recovering from, from the arm surgery, so uh, got my stitches out a few days ago, so I'm trying to get moving. You held that get information back. out on us, so we'll get to that in a moment. But next, okay. he returns to the show, the man on the road, the only man who currently travels across the country, complete with his own Mae West vest, the one, the only Jeff Copsetta, coming live and in stereo from the wonderful state of New Jersey. Jeff, sir, That's how great. are you and your strange uh, luggage going on your road trip, fella? <laughs> you know, you just never know when you're going to need an A2 and a Mayweather. That's all I'm going to say. Jeff tuned in on Zoom for those of you listening at home. And behind him, there's a Mayweather vest on a flight jacket with an Air Force Air Corps captain's hat. And both Henry and I say, well, uh, your sister's got some nice decor mustering the family. Jeff's yes. like, no. I brought it with me. You know, last week we were marveling at your your roadside accommodations, if you will, on your truck with your inverter complete with Mr. Coffee <laughs> attached to your console. Yeah, my, my Keurig in my truck. I know a lot of people have been talking about that. <laughs> now, I mean, inquiring minds want to know, does your truck come factory with an inverter or do you pack one with you? Yeah. Oh, no, that's factory. That's factory equipment. That's a 2012 Ram. So, uh, yeah. No, I didn't put that in for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Henry, before we get to Jeff's um, road road adventure tales, right? Did I miss out on a text message? Am I just like so wrapped up in my own nonsense that I didn't even hear the precursor to this hand surgery you're having? No, <clears throat> um, I guess I didn't talk about it much. They had to go in and work. You can probably still see where they took the stitches out. They had to. My thumb was locked up. And then they had to do a debriefment on my elbow tendon. So he's got brand new GI Joe Kung Fu grip now. Yeah, yeah, it actually works now. So now, what did they call that? This is this hand? was called the the name of the surgery. It's called trigger thumb, and they call it a pulley release. That's the procedure name. Oh, I didn't know if pulley you had like Drupinson's or whatever that's called. There's a certain sort of uh, ailment that people get where they can't close their hands all the way. And it's called like Drupinson syndrome or something like that. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't. It wasn't the the elbow thing. I will tell you what started that. I mean, it, it got aggravated from working out, but the whole problem started from 2017 to 2020. I played in a like women's a roller league team. League. Huh? <laughs> I said women's roller derby league. No, it was actually I played ice hockey, <laughs> but um, and I would spend hours practicing my shot on a shooting mat, you know, into a goal. And. <laughs> that just irritated the tendon and damaged the tissue and then it would get better and then like working out stuff would exacerbate it and cause it to flare up and it just finally i had to do something about it so in the 90s i transitioned from skateboarding to street rollerblading and some minor street hockey and i can carry that over into a decent night of ice skating but i do not have the skills to play hockey mad props you for that i mean that's that, okay. I didn't either. <laughs> well, hence the busted elbow. But even if even if you could play enough, I mean, hockey is one of the things that's it's really two skills in one. You got to know how to ice skate oh, yeah. proficiently, and then you got to know how to play hockey. Yeah, I could, it sucked for me because I didn't even start skating until I was you know over fifty. So wow. But um, I played in one hundred and forty-two games, um, and they were, it was garbage league. Like it was a learning league. Sure. You know, my son played. And and when he was from seven to twelve, and that's what got me interested in it. When I would, then I had an adult league, so I I skated a, quite often as a kid. Like I said, I, I did the rollerblade <laughs> thing, and then I I skated until I was like I don't know seventeen eighteen. Then I just took a short twenty years off and sure. didn't get back into it until I was in my early thirties. Because I, when I was working a radio, you know, the radio stations would always do these different little outings depending on the advertiser. And one All of the right. things we were doing was. Um, the guys from Slapshot was coming to town, and they were going to be at the baseball, the local minor league baseball stadium, and we are having the night over there. So we turned that into a, a go skate with Stan and Haney, who I used to produce for. Mm-hmm. But anyhow, uh, so Stan, he used to play high, um, hockey in high school until he burnt his foot in a deep fryer. That's a different story for a different time. But um, so he 
he got his ice skates out and he was getting back into it and he was looking online and he found a basically a new version of the pair he used in high school. So he just gave me a nice pair of damn near brand new Bauer skates. Like, here you go. I'm like, sweet. Wow. So I just started going ice skating all the time again. And cool. I was able to pick it up for the most part. Like I said, it took 20 years off, but I just, I was never, you know, I can't hockey stop. I mean, I, like I said, I can skate fast and make for a good night of recreational ice skating with the family, but there's no way I could play hockey. That's just way too out of my league. How's your kid, how's your kid's uh, mountain bike stuff? Well, no, you said it's up, but he's running now. Well, yeah, he's doing cross country running. Mountain bike season's over. He did do a pair of uh, league, not league races, but he did a couple races a couple weeks ago um, here in Birmingham. But yeah, he's running cross country, and then they started morning football workouts. Um, So that'll be for that's summer, the summer deal, you know. Now, forgive me, I never showed much interest in extracurricular athletics in high school because I was yeah, a bit I of a, I was a bit of a dick. But when uh, <laughs> high school kids run um, cross-country, how many miles are they running um, on a normal Jack, car- how many miles are you guys running cross-country? Three or four miles. Okay, so they're doing like a 5K. You know. Cool, cool. Uh, well, this is a perfect segue because we did just come off of Father's Day and everybody here, including everybody here, are all fathers. And so uh, what did you do for Father's Day, Henry? Um, man, we just, we stayed put. We were here. Yeah. Took it easy. You know, I brought my mom over. Nice. That's getting tough. She's 95. So she has, you know, she struggles getting up these stairs and stuff. So, yeah, we, I got up, it rained a little bit. We went out, try to get some food. It was pouring down rain. So basically went to some joint that had a small jaunt from the car to the front door eight. And then we were going to go see Maverick and it's like the movie theater is going to be packed. It's pouring down rain. Uh, do we really want to get flooded, but go get completely drenched and then sit in an ice cold meat locker AC movie theater for two and a half hours? Like, no, we'll go another day. And so I came home and passed out, and pretty much that was it. But uh, Jeff, as we said, has been on the road. He's been the road warrior, and he's got lots of travel, lots of story and intrigue. So that's why I kind of got Henry and mine's little stuff out of the way because. We're going to hand this episode over to Jeff and uh, get caught up in his going-ons in the world, the man who travels with his own May West vest, because you never know when traffic on Interstate 60 East, what'd you take to get to, <laughs> what interstate did you take? What goes East? Uh, so for me, uh, I, I, I got to pick up I-35 North to 20 to 30 around Dallas, 30 takes you to Little Rock, pick up 40 dinner in memphis 40 all the way to 81 come up through virginia then you're in dc baltimore and then you're here see that 29 hours that is the oh. what's the scuttlebutt podcast difference because in any other podcast the host would said i don't know i just put it in google maps and hit navigate not jeff <laughs> he's got the whole damn thing memorized <laughs> yeah well i don't know we may need to call this what's the rabbit hole podcast i don't know we've talked about everything already that's <laughs> well, kind of the point i mean yeah. we're getting to it so talking about hockey but so lead us down the road no pun intended you're heading out east to uh, be with your family but you figure while i'm on the road let's check out some sites so uh, where did your road take you yeah so um well you know when I, I you know i'm from new jersey so when i lived here as a kid um i volunteered at a really cool little uh regional airport almost identical to you know the museum i'm running now in Vernon. i mean it's small town regional airport throw an air show out there uh, a couple public programs some really cool aircraft you know but nothing like the big city type stuff um so my goal was to definitely make a stop there now um, i'm not gonna be able to get there till friday but uh like i said staying here at my sister's in beautiful williamstown new jersey i mean it, it is I, I forgot how beautiful the southern part of the state really is you know just i miss the woods and it is it's just it's beautiful. Um, well, that's so, kind of the weird thing about, you know, you live in Texas, there's some greenery, but it's, it's pretty similar to California scape or even Florida scape for that, that end point. And, uh, yeah. And I remember when I moved back from California, I was driving through Georgia and all that. I forgot how nice it was to see the different shades of greens and the different plants and the vegetation. And, and I'm sure you feel the same way being in Texas for all the time and going to New Jersey and just seeing all the different yeah vegetation like oh i forgot all about all this yeah stuff. i mean the trees are they dwarf the telephone poles along the sides of the road you know so um 
So anyway, see, I, I definitely wanted to make a few World War II related stops, to put some stuff together for this episode and just to see some places, uh, you know, I didn't get a chance to see when I lived here as a kid. So first stop uh, the other day was the Millville Army Airfield Museum. And guys, oh, my gosh, um, I, I met the director of that museum there and told I had to tell her before I left. So this is, you know, I told, I've been in the biggest World War II museums in the country. You know, sure. I, I've seen them. I worked for one of them for five years. I've never seen artifacts so curated so well, displayed. It, it was just so intriguing the way they did this. And, you know, you go on their website and it looks like it's maybe a, like a Quonset hut sized building with artifacts in it. It's huge. And it's been growing. It, it had very humble beginnings. I want to say in the, gosh, the late sixties is when it kind of got started. Uh, but it's, it's on an original army airfield base. That was the first in defense in New Jersey. It was a P 41, uh, P 47 fighter group base. Really? And, oh yes. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh yeah, man. <laughs> you, right you got me a P 47, man. Dude. Uh, I mean, the murals on the sides of the buildings were just amazing. Very inviting as you're going in there. And, um, it just seemed like that place never ended. It was unbelievable. And some of the ways that they displayed these artifacts, I mean, here, here, let me put it this way. There's nothing in there. I probably really like haven't seen. Right. I mean, we're World War II buffs. We're going like, okay, I've seen that. That's cool. Right. I took 74 pictures in there. Wow. So that That's should cool. kind of give our listeners an idea. If it's catching my, if it's, you know, grabbing me like that, it's that well done. Um, you know, the, some of their displays to show what the inside of a barracks would look like. So they've got bunks with an original coal stove. There's a bucket of coal there. The, you know, the guy's boots are up under the bunk. The bunks are made, you know, uh, the mannequins are so well done. They've got a, um, a behind glass. They've got a male and a female mannequin of a service member in his dress uniform and his wife in her beautiful wedding gown and displayed with it is the picture of them when they got married, you know, so Things like that you typically wouldn't expect, um, you know, when you go into an to a, a, a an air museum. It's also home to the link. They have a link trainer uh, built a separate building where these guys, you know, and, and if our listeners aren't familiar with the with the link trainer, they need to look it up. This is our first flight simulator. Um, you know, came out in the late twenties. This is how Jimmy Doolittle could make his flight completely yep. on instrumentation. That that's the technology used. So there's, I think there's three of them on display now, you know, Highland Lakes Air Museum in Burnett has one, uh, but the, and I thought we were lucky to have the one, but these folks have three, they have the crabs that are actually, um, you know, drawing out their flight path on the desk It's connected to the flight simulator. Um, so just, just unbelievable. Uh, they were super nice. Um, there was a very special World War II veteran that had since passed away. He was an integral part of it. His wife is still there greeting you at the door, handing you these packets. Wow. The newsletter is so well done. Um, and, and Lisa, who's the uh, the executive director of the museum, she's been there for like 17 years. And you can tell under her leadership, this place is just soaring. Um, nice outside equipment as well. Get to see a really nice A4 Skyhawk, that's an actual combat vet. They had a local uh, group of kids paint it up um, to, to put it back to the uh, to the squadron colors that it would have flown on. I can't remember the name of the, of the carrier it was based on. And, uh, you know, a couple uh, vehicles outside, um, you know, fire trucks and a howitzer, things like that. Um, cool location, awesome museum, uh, super nice folks. They handed me and my sister these really cool T-shirts uh, with a P-47 on it, so... Heck of a stop. I mean, heck of a stop right there. Let me ask you, um, with all of your experiences in museums, like you said, you've worked for the big ones and the small ones, and I'm looking at some of the photos you posted on YouTube, um, YouTube on Facebook, on social media, Instagram. And what is it about the way they did their displays? Because it looks like, you know, this is a modest museum with modest funding. Um, do you think maybe because the, the funding is modest enough that it forces them to put more detail into what they're displaying and make sure everything's accurate or is there more of a, 
personal touch to it? What is it? I mean, because once again, you've you've been to all of them. What is it that just completely blew you out of the water about this place that that maybe you'll take back to what what you do to your museum? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I took away from it is, you know, it's nice to see something that's not under glass with this mm-hmm. primo lighting and sixty eight degrees. Like I understand the curation part of that uh, for the sustainment of the artifact. But there, I think there has to be a little bit of a give and take because there is stuff that they probably have multiple of maybe. Yep. But there's stuff you could just you could walk up and touch it. Uh, you know, a couple bicycles from England. There was a Swiss bicycle. You know, uh, messenger bicycle. Um, just just the just the uh, like I said, the barracks scene. I mean, you're not going to ruin the wool blanket. You know, let people kind of look at it. So there was a lot easier i think for photographing mm-hmm. it was it was very inviting because you're not dealing with a lot of glare on the glass you know you can i don't know it just submerges you in it and there's so much stuff and i don't this is i can't answer this question i don't know how they did it there was so much stuff in there yet not cluttered yeah, it reminds me a lot of, sadly, of the Southwest Florida Military Museum and Library who did not make it through the pandemic. I mean, they're still open, but they were used to be in a building that was the footprint of choose your grocery store, whether you're Kroger's or Ralph's, a Trader Joe's, a Publix, whatever Kroger, whatever your grocery store is in your neighborhood. Imagine taking that and turning it into a museum when then they got relegated down to what used to be the Disney store in our mall. And so because of the rent and the pan- they survived strictly on donations and the pandemic just destroyed them. But they were the same way. And I, I'm looking at these photos, and to me, it the only thing I can come up with, now obviously I haven't been there, but kind of based on what you're saying, to me, and you hear this a lot about people's real nice houses. People's houses either look lived in or they look like museums and are super sterile and uncomfortable. This looks like a museum that's quote-unquote lived in, like you said. It's not yeah. sterile. It's not all glass and and accent lighting and you know don't touch don't touch this has a very it almost has like an antique store feel to it yes exactly very warm and inviting you know the the super important stuff is under glass but there's plenty of things that aren't and it's it's definitely i can i can see why it would excite you so well so so much to be in there because that was one of my favorite museums we had here and it was the same way i mean it was just everything was put together and like I'm looking at the the bunk beds with the the boots underneath and the uniforms hanging on and it's I can definitely see how it's uh would incite your um excitement because sometimes yeah. and, and and when you have a place that's that packed but not cluttered like you said before you know it, you've holy I've spent 20 minutes in this one corner <laughs> opposed yeah, exactly. to opposed okay in this five foot span, there's one artifact with a description and a bunch of nice from Micah. Okay, let's go over here. So right. I can definitely f- see how that uh, would excite you. Now, did you see anything that's, oh, I've never, we could do that. I've never thought about displaying something that way or anything that kind of set off a, a little light bulb in the back of your mind for stuff you could do with your museum? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, the way this stuff was displayed in some of those areas it took me a second look as i as i'm kind of like coming back through because you go in and you kind of have these wings that that go back you know from like a central area so you know it's it it flows very well you kind of go down one side you've got everything on the outs you know on the walls and you've got like a center aisle so it took me till i was coming back to one of these wings to look at this stuff again wow that's just um it was basically almost like a workbench four by fours and and two by eights built some of these platforms along the walls painted in navy gray and you put the right stuff in the right place on it and you don't even realize how you know inexpensive some of these exhibits are some of the cases i mean the, none of the cases are exactly symmetrical as far as your glass cases in it they make it work beautifully and it just it blew me away um gave me a whole different perspective um yeah it was exactly like walking into an antique shop you you just uh, unbelievable man Always. it was just it, the offices for the staff and the volunteers there's cubicles right built within the museum nice <laughs> you right i mean so they're submerged right with you they're right there you know they're not somewhere upstairs in some vault 
they're, they're right there. So, but it didn't take away from the experience one bit. Plus I would assume since they have a desk that's centrally located in one area after a while of sitting in that one area and answering questions about those artifacts around your desk, they're probably going to get pretty proficient on the history of those artifacts within 20 feet of their desk. They could probably oh, answer just they about any question. Knowledgeable. Yeah. Super knowledgeable. Really, uh, they got a C, I forgot to mention they had a C-47 cockpit, uh, just, just that front portion of the aircraft, uh, you know, all renovated and painted up. Mm. Really nice, uh, really nice deck that kind of takes you up so you can walk inside and see what it looked like. You can tell a lot of blood and sweat went into that project. And they even took the time. It's the little stuff, right? So they even took the time when you're on this landing and, and one of the docents was taking us through, you know, we're kind of standing uh, before he opened the door, kind of telling us about it, the shape that it was in. I think it was actually an R4D uh, that they, you know, painted up to look like a, a C-47. And on this wooden deck, you know, on the one by six, you know, planking on the on the deck part that you're standing on, they painted the the deck boards with the invasion, the Normandy invasion stripes. Nice. You know, like that was slick, you know. So just like I said, little little details like that, just just super, super well done. And and when you pull up, you can feel people like us, man, you feel the history. You kind of get that tingle and you can just feel the history there. I mean, they're showing you pieces of the aircraft P-47s found in a field, you know, these guys in training that crashed, you know, cylinders. Do you know, do you know what group it was? What fighter oh group it was? Oh my gosh. There was a whole list on the front door. I mean, there was four or five. And um, I want to say on their website that they mentioned uh, the 56th, which I don't know if it gets. Wasn't anymore. that Gabreski? Uh, it was Zemke's Wolfpack, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and my favorite, P-47, um, Bud mm -hmm. Mahirans, the, the spirit of Atlantic City, uh, the, that famous P-47, boy, that thing is is everywhere in there. Um, yeah. You know, I, I love seeing some of those photos. And, mm -hmm. yeah, man, there's it's just wall-to-wall. -wall. It's just incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking on the website now. Actually, well, no, this is the South Jersey Cultural Alliance who has a oh, page dedicated to split my screen here. But, yeah, yeah, you guys can pull some stuff up. So, uh, they've got a great selection of books at, at a very fair price. So I'll show you just some of the titles I came home with. Sure. This is a really nice one here. Uh, basically just photographs taken uh, during the filming of Saving Private Ryan. Lots of behind the scenes type stuff, you know, things that didn't that you don't see during the during the film. But every picture is from the movie um, with uh, I think there was a forward in here somewhere by uh, Steven Spielberg, I want to say. Um, they've got excerpts from Stephen Ambrose in here as well. You know, just really cool, really cool book about the movie. <laughs> Couldn't pass this one up. Nice. Bloody Ocken. I, I'm not familiar with this one, familiar with the battle, but, uh, but not this particular book. I know Don will probably appreciate this one. Carlson's Raid. Oh, Carlson's Raiders. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. By George Smith. Yeah. That's about their assault. On the island of Macon. Yeah, you'll have to give me a synopsis on that once you get done reading oh, it. Oh, absolutely. This one's great. Posters that won the war. Mm. Oh. Um, I flipped through this. I've already looked at every page. Haven't you know? Haven't read every uh, caption on it yet. But some really neat kind of behind this. You know, not behind the scenes, but hey, just you some got history. That there. You yeah, I got there. all these books there. Oh yeah, okay. they've got a great selection of books. Uh, very, very fairly priced books. Um, the, I guess my only comment is if people pick up this book, the caption is not necessarily next to the picture. It, it mm. can be confusing. So when you're reading, you have to look. It'll have the page number like above the caption. Hmm. Not necessarily that's what's next to the picture you're seeing. So Is, that's, is it because there's so much information on each picture? So exactly. Yeah. Here's it's, one it's picture, so but here's much. five pages about the history of how this right. Right. And some they leave pure without any words on all. It's just like a centerfold of the poster. So you got to wait a couple pages to see the, the caption. And then uh, picked up this one here. Kind of a coffee table book, hardbound book about Poe. Oh, Wilmot, yeah. H.P. Yeah. Wilmot. Yeah. I, have, I haven't even cracked that one open yet and couldn't turn down a DVD at 12 o'clock high. Oh, yes. <laughs> Can't turn that down. And uh, I, I wasn't aware of this, but it actually stuck inside of here are these nice postcard-sized nice. photographs, nice. yeah, during filming of 12 O'Clock High as well. Oh, man. Nice I love that movie. That came in there. Yeah. So, needless to say, that was a successful stop. And, you know, for my sister to enjoy it as much as she did, 
you know, I was a little bit leery going in. I was just kind of thinking, uh, are you sure? Because I may spend some time in there. <laughs> I, I had to drag her out. <laughs> you know? Um so yeah i mean she got to sit in the link trainer we got the whole vip tour i don't know an hour and a half probably had the place to ourselves i mean they were just just so just classy people just very very classy so that was my first stop uh that has to do with world war ii then i had a very exciting day oh my background's changing again it's okay that's I'm, right. on, I'm on the road here it's dynamic <laughs> um Growing up, so I, I stayed, I was in New Jersey for the first 16 years of my life. I had never seen the battleship New Jersey mm. sitting right there in the water. So, just um, one of those things you take me, for granted while you're there. Probably, I guess. Kinda I mean, like living in Florida and I never go to the beach. <laughs> Same yeah, thing. Yeah. One of those things, you know, I've still never seen the Statue of Liberty. I don't yeah. know what's wrong with me, <laughs> but I saw the Grand Canyon when I was like four. But uh, anyway, so, yeah, I wanted to see wanted to see uh, what a BB-63, I think it is, most decorated ship in uh, in the history of the United States. Um, you know, first uh, went into action, I think, one year anniversary after Pearl Harbor. I think it entered service December of 42. I didn't get a chance to go on the ship. Uh, that was something I have uh, planned for a later time, but I at least got to go up and see it. Uh, so, you know, that was that was definitely pretty slick. Um that same day, um, I may have mentioned on this podcast before, we've got some really neat antique uh, vehicles that were in the estate uh, of the family here. And some of them are still, you know, my some of my uncles and aunts are stewards of these uh, of these vehicles. So got a chance to drive a couple of them. One of them having a World War Two connection. Um, it's a 1937 uh, Railton. And it is. Basically, it's not as easy as how cars are made today. Uh, there was a British, uh, the guy's name was Reed Railton. I want to say he was a, a race car driver or motorcycle racer, some sort. Goes back to England, wants to design these cars like an American standard, but you know, using American vehicles, but with British styling. So that was kind of these, these hybrid vehicles. And um, it was owned by the, uh, uh, his name was, Le, went by Lord Abercrombie. Abercromway. He was the third Lord Abercromway. He was one of the lords that was at the second Munich, which that wasn't really a thing till I think the 90s that that meeting had actually happened. Um, so, uh, you know, kind of uh, a pal, I guess you could say, advisor to Churchill. Um, but an interesting story. He bought that car in 39 and had it for quite a few years, bought it simply for, uh, he wanted to go hunting and he was going there and here, he's like, oh, I guess I need a vehicle to be a lot quicker. So he buys this car and had it for quite some time. It was a convertible that started to rot. So he literally put a thatch roof on this car. Nice. And it was sometime decades later, he wanted to try to see if this car was still around contacted my grandfather. They wrote letters back and forth to get the history of this car uh, and how it served during World War II with uh, the third Lord Abercromway. So that was a really cool experience for me to, uh, to be able to do that. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of cool history. Then to kind of top it off, I got the opportunity to go into Al Capone's mansion that he lived in for about a year when he was on the run. I think he was there most of the year, 1927. Uh, was purchased, I guess, pretty recently um, by a guy who's basically going to turn it into a museum. Uh, it, so it's basically decorated like Capone's about to walk in. That's um, awesome. So had the place to ourselves. He was out there working and just happened to ask if we could go in. He said, absolutely. <laughs> we went in every room, uh, including seeing the vault, uh, kind of hidden uh, you know, with a big steel door where all of the bootlegged, you know, what was kept. <laughs> um, so beautiful man. I don't even remember how many bathrooms you guys can look it up. It's a big 36 acre estate, had its own oh. lake, a detached seven car garage. Um, but the gardener, uh, we just struck up a conversation. It's beautiful. Um, FDR and Winston Churchill had visited this estate uh, after it was sold off, after Capone had it. It was bought by some other wealthy people. 
So it's just like this time capsule. I mean, it's just trees. It's a lake. It's beautiful gardening, a beautiful mansion overlooking this. I mean, it was just so secluded. You had to know where it was at to find it. I mean, like I said, he's on the run. And you can see there's little like sneak away doors like from the kitchen. There's it looks like a window, but it opens and you can you can get out of there. All these little hidey holes in the That's walls. Sweet. And I mean, who knows, right? Um, but the gardener found out that I was a World War II buff and we started talking, and she has a good friend whose father uh on VE Day. He was a P-51 pilot serving over in Europe and on VE day flies his P-51 under the Eiffel tower. You can imagine that made, that made news. Mm -hmm. um, the guy lived an incredible life. The family said he led the life essentially of a history buffs dream. Uh, fascination with airplanes started when he saw the movie, you know, all quiet on the Western front. That's kind of where it started. Didn't really talk about his service, I think, till the 70s. Um, and one of the uh, one of the favorite stories he told was somewhere over in northern France. He's chasing this German fighter and he ends up getting shot down by French ground troops. <laughs> I just kind of the only thing they ever hit. <laughs> Did she say the name okay. of the gentleman who, who passed away? Absolutely. Yeah. His name is Colonel Robert A. Sean. Not Shaw, like the actor, Sean, S-H-A-W-N. There's a great Washington Post uh, article that should pull up about him. Uh, so, yeah, this this French general, of course, you know, he crash lands. He's he's OK. But this French general is like, sorry, man. <laughs> you know? So busts out a bottle of cognac. All is forgiven. Uh, and then he tells another story that I would have loved to have heard him tell it firsthand. But sometime during the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, he is he is refused a meal in an officer's club because he's wearing a dirty flight suit. <laughs> and he tells him, like, Look, I haven't had a hot meal in two days, you know, and they're just they're pushing him away. So he pulls out his his 45 and uh, he got his hot meal that day. <laughs> but uh, lived to be the ripe old age of 100. He passed away about passed away about two years ago. Uh, he was a big you know, car nut. I think it says he bought a PT cruiser at the age of 98 because he liked the way it looked <laughs> um, and, and died at a hundred years old in his sleep. Uh, just didn't wake up one day, but uh, Robert a Sean, the P 51 pilot that flew under the Eiffel tower on the day. And there's another story that says that he liberated came home with a hundred cases of Don Perignon. Fantastic. <laughs> now for those of you at home saying, really, could this guy possibly fly underneath the spans of the Eiffel Tower or is this family lore? Apparently, he's not the only one to have done so. So this is actually, at least we've known done twice because I was trying to find a story on him. But apparently there's a young gentleman who recently passed away. World War II aviator Bill Overstreet Jr., best known for flying beneath the Eiffel Tower in pursuit of German planes. So apparently it's been done on record. So this, guy, ah. this uh, Bill Overstreet Jr. has been has a record of doing it while chasing Germans. So apparently, you know, this is do very doable and has been done at least twice. But yeah, that's very cool. It's nice to, you know, when you can track down something that kind of gives proof that it's doable and it has been done by multiple people. So that's very, very cool. And it's it's just one of those things of how small the world is. Here you are at a Al Capone place of all places, not World War II, Al Capone. Al Capone. Yeah. And you're talking to the gardener, and they and they just oh that would be such a yeah that would be such a great. Let me ask you guys this: Did you find the Al Capone Museum and story interesting enough that maybe we would possibly do an episode if we can get someone from that museum on maybe for one episode go away from World War II and maybe talk Al Capone one night? Oh, I don't I don't see why not. Um, it, the museum's not open. No, but yeah, the guy yeah. who's putting this together clearly knows enough about it that if we reached out to him, I'm sure he'd be able to at least give us 30 minutes worth of content on it. I would, I would think so. I've got kind of another. Uh, I've got something else brewing. Sure. Uh, what's today? Monday. So Wednesday. Uh, speaking of the antique car collection, my grandfather. Uh, no, he he sold it. No longer owns it now. But um, it was a 1930 Auburn. And. Amelia Earhart had one identical. Nice. So identical, in fact, that I'm going to meet the man 
this the old timer now who took Amelia Earhart's car apart to build my grandfather's. Now, like I said, it, my grandfather's is gone. I heard that somehow there's some connection with Trump that owns the car now. I'm not exactly sure the connection there. No. Um, did I mishear you or did you say that basically he parted out Amelia's car to build your grandfather's? Basically, apparently that's what happened. Nice. <laughs> she was so rough on it that she blew it up and it was worth nothing that she left it at the mechanic who then parted it out the bill just grandfather's yeah. car yeah I, I i can't wait to hear the story so you know that's something else too um that would be kind of an interesting aviation theme pre-world war ii um you know enough to be able to do an episode on i don't know but uh there's just so much so much history out there too man it's, well that's yeah that's kind of the cool thing about having family members who are involved in hobbies that have serial and or VIN numbers. It's easily to trace prominence and, and, and track things down and it makes that community even smaller. So that's very cool that, you know, because of that VIN number, you know, you can track down who currently has it or who possibly bought it. And, and those, and you, and you hear those stories all the time where like somebody who finally makes it a, a station in life where they have the, ability to like track down their dad's car when he had when he was 16 that he sold when he was 22 and like rebuy it and restore it and those right. those stories always pretty damn cool well and and that's how the lord found the uh the railton it, it's just got a license plate a british license plate on it, it doesn't change it goes yeah. with the car it's a six digit you know and then that's it that's the car that's the railton so yeah which, by the way, I, I looked up the the Railton that that it's named after. You said the guy was a, a racer. He actually had the world speed record for a while. So not okay, only yeah. was he a designer, but he was a land speed record holder for for a while during his day. Yeah, Reed Railton. Yeah, it's pretty slick. It was it was just one one of the Railtons. I don't know which model because I think there was five or six manufacturers uh, that that made them, and they put his name on it. Was the fastest car off the line. And at one time in the 30s. And I'll tell you right now, a hundred ninety-five and a nineteen thirties model car is a hell of a lot scarier than a hundred and eighty in a Tesla. I'll tell you right uh, now. <laughs> absolutely. I want to say the specs on this particular one, which is a Claremont, is zero to sixty in eight point eight seconds. That's but eight. Uh, you know, you're like entering the Earth's atmosphere. I was gonna say that's open cab, <laughs> drum brakes, no power <laughs> steering, mechanical brakes. Oh, wooden wood frame. frames, not even, they probably didn't have air inflated tires. It was probably the old thick white rubber ones. Like you see on old wheelchairs. Just <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was uh, actually, it was easier to drive than I thought. Um, of course the steering wheels on the right. So shifting with the left, but you know, it was, it was, it was surprisingly easy to drive. It was pretty slick. I mean, you know, almost a hundred years old. And uh, you could take it, take it down the road. I don't want to be that guy, but you know that stuff was made before the advent of, um, uh, you know, uh, what's what do they call that um, intentional obsolescence or wear, wear and tear parts or whatever phraseology you want. Throw away. What's yeah. that? Throw away stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Planned obsolescence. That's the phrase we're looking yeah, for. Planned yeah. obsolescence. You got any? Uh, you want to jump in or have any questions for uh, Jeff on this, Henry, on his travel? No, I mean, I'm just enjoying God, I'm still thinking about the Millville Air Museum. Hey. I'm going to go yeah. check their website out tomorrow. No, do nice. it, do it. And I'm going to send, uh, I've got the, uh, I've got Lisa's business card. I'm going to send her a link. I told her, I said, I also do this. And she goes, oh, I'm going to tell everybody that, you know, that you came through. And I said, well, when the, when the episode drops, I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll send her a link and, I just can't say enough about it, guys. I mean, I, it's just a little town in a, in a beautiful part of South Jersey. I, you know, how many of our listeners are in, are in Jersey? I don't know, maybe one, and they're probably related to me. <laughs> but, you know, as we grow, as, as word gets out, you know, because let's face it, how many World War II museums didn't make it through the pandemic? A lot. A Sadly. Lot. And, you know, it was just, it was impressive, you know, that they could stay open as long as they have. And again, to see their very humble beginnings and, and the location, you can build a museum anywhere, I guess, but to have it at the airfield, I mean, you're right there. You're looking at the runway from these buildings, the link trainer building, the barracks where these guys were, you know. Is the runway just, still functioning? Oh, yeah. There's, there's an FBO right there. It's a regular okay. public so it's an FBO. airport. Okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. And real, oh, yeah. And real quick, real quick, real quick, back to the USS New Jersey, BB-62, as you lovingly called it. 
Here's a little fun fact. I'm sure you may have heard on your tour, but probably fell into all the bags of other information. The uh, USS New Jersey, otherwise known as the Big J, earned more battle stars for combat action than any of the other three completed Iowa-class battleships and was the only U.S. battleship providing gunfire support during Vietnam War. So that thing had some life to it. And I think it's the last battleship class before they uh, became obsolete, like 91. I think yeah, they're the, showing the there's a serving. photo over here in, uh, underway in 1985. Let me get on the... Where, where did BB-62, like in World War II, where did she spend most of her time? Uh, I think mostly in the Pacific. Um, yes, it I said... The, the New Jersey in particular um, shelled targets on Guam and Okinawa and screened aircraft carriers uh, conducting raids in the Marshall Islands. Uh, during nice. the Korean War, she was involved in uh, raids up and down the North uh, Korean coast, after which she was decommissioned in the United States Naval Reserve Fleet, better known as the Meatball Fleet. She was briefly reactivated in 1968 and sent to Vietnam to support the U.S. troops before returning to the Mothball Fleet. That's why I said meatball. No, this guy said does uh, said mothball the first time. Anyhow, returning to the mothball fleet in 1969, reactivated once more in 1980 as part of the 600 ship Navy program. The New Jersey was modernized to carry missiles and uh, recommissioned into service. In 1983, she was a participant in the U.S. operations during the Lebanese Civil War. New Jersey was decommissioned once again for the last time in 1991 after serving a total of 21 years in the active fleet, having earned the Navy unit commendation for service in the Vietnam and 19 battles and campaign, uh, 19 battles and campaign stars for combat operations during World War II, the Korea War and Vietnam War, the Lebanese Civil War, and service in the Persian Gulf. After a brief retention in the mothball fleet, she was donated to the Home Port Alliance in Camden, New Jersey, and has been a museum museum ship starting there since October 15th of 2001. Yeah, it's it, it, it's really well done. And, and the Philadelphia, you know, I mean the Philadelphia, the Delaware River right there is not very wide. So from Camden to Philly, um, you know, you can see it crossing the bridge there and it's all lit up at night. And I think the pictures that, Don, that you probably see um, we actually, after we saw the New Jersey, went right across the bridge, had dinner on a beautiful sail ship. Uh, it, it's known as the Monshulu now, but it was a German sail ship from 1904. Uh, was captured. Uh, I believe it was captured by, the, I can't remember if it was the Americans or the British, and then captured back by the Germans. <laughs> and then... Um, I, I'm trying to remember the whole story. It's it beautiful. You're sitting on this sail ship looking over at Battleship New Jersey. Wow. And then uh, right behind you is the cruiser Olympia from 1895. And moored right next to that is a submarine. Uh, I don't remember the name of that, but they're, they're all just sitting right there. So you can you can have a, you know, a sushi roll on the Monshulu like I did looking at the Battleship New Jersey lit up. And it's just so much history, you know, so much. So... Um, yeah, like I said, I didn't get to go in the tour on the New Jersey, not yet, uh, but that's definitely going to happen. Um, but uh, yeah, that's that's why we we do this, guys. We got to keep this stuff afloat. Oh yeah, man. No pun intended. It's making me want to get out and see some stuff. Yeah, man. Dude, um, so they have which submarine is sitting by the New Jersey? You know, I, it starts with a B, and I can't remember if it was. Bowfish or Bowfin or something no, like that. No, it was something. It was not. I, I did not recognize it. And I want to say I was inside of that as a kid. Yeah. So I probably have some something it, somewhere on it. But. It sounds like the basic setup they have down here in Mobile, south of me, about four. You know, they got the Alabama BB-16 right. and the drum, the USS drum. Okay. Sitting, you know, sitting right there. Yeah. Yeah. The, and the Olympia, that looks amazing. I mean, that just screams. It looks like it's from Teddy Roosevelt's, like, Great White Fleet. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. it is you could see the gun turret. You could just see the age. You know, looking at that compared to the the uh, New Jersey. You right. know these these old turrets that just kind of swing around, kind of like what you saw in those early tanks of the First World War. Um, a wooden helm up there. You know, just you could you could really see the age on that one. Um, 
and, and just the early technology of some of those naval guns. I mean, it's just bristling with guns everywhere. Mm-hmm. Incredible. But Yeah, I'm trying to yeah. search the um the home port alliance um submarine. But um it just keeps pulling up documentation on the New Jersey. So anyhow. just pull, pull up Cruiser Olympia. Because it, it, they're kind of paired. They're kind of one tour. It's just called like historic ship tour. And it's those two that are. Um, submarine B-E-C-U-N-A. That's it. B- Bakuna. Bakuna. Yeah. Cruiser Olympia and Submarine Bakuna. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. That's. Yeah, I'm trying to find photos of it on here. But yeah, so. It's, that sounds like the place to go if you're into naval stuff. I mean, that's another one of those topics we don't cover a whole whole hell of a lot here on, on the show, and we need to get some people on here who know a lot more about the Navy and all that. But it sounds like if you're in the, the Navy vessels and you're up in the East Coast, that's the place you want to go to, to see some fantastic displays. Absolutely, and and I've got one more for you. It was actually where I went today. I kind of slipped my mind. <laughs> I went to the New Jersey Maritime museum uh and i'll be sharing pictures with you guys soon um mostly about uh shipwrecks okay um and a lot of the stuff that's beached up again so it's on long beach there's a little skinny island uh on the coast of new jersey um a lot like what texas has you know port aransas and mustang island um so there's like a little channel between the main body and then you've got long beach island and and that's where it's located so you you just imagine the kind of stuff that's washed ashore there Uh, yeah so really neat history. Uh, I learned about a, uh, a cruiser that had a, 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 tra- a tragedy that equivalent to the Titanic, not 22 years later uh, in 1934, uh, the Moro Castle sailing from, uh, from Havana, Cuba to New York ends up catching fire. They later find out it was arson by one of the crew. Uh, over 100 people lost their lives and it beached right there at Asbury Park. I mean, hmm. just this huge cruise liner and nothing the size of the Titanic, but yeah. a large ship just crew and still on fire. So these, you know, civilians are just going out there with their boats, pulling, you know, rescuing these folks. And it was just a, a terrible story. Um, but then a lot of stuff about second world war and, and some of the uh, cargo ships as uh, one, there was a porthole from it in 1942. That was, you know, hit by a, a torpedo, was torpedoed by a, a German sub, you know, early on knowing the Germans were all up and down New Jersey, you know, patrolling yeah. during the early part of the war. So uh, neat, neat history there. A lot of neat World War II uniforms and uh, and pictures and artifacts from different ships from the Second World War. So um, I'll be sharing that stuff with you guys as well. So, you know, that's one I've of those covered up in history. That's one of those facts that we don't talk too much about is the the amount of activity of German subs all along the United States during the war. Cause I was reading, you know, I'm, I'm in that reading that book, the fatal dive. And they're talking about when uh, that sub first left it, it's pen from being created. It was the most technical sub of its time. And before they made their way to the Pacific, they chased a few Germans out, out, you know, of our waters, but uh, never got into any act- action with them. But that's just one of those things that, we, that's really not discussed with maybe the little, a little brief snippet that's attached to you know why we may have may or may not have daylight savings times and this and that because you know the blackout times during the war because of potential submarine attacks. But you know that's one of those things that we don't really think too much about the threat to our nation during the wartime from submarines. Absolutely, yeah, and I know there was. Um some damage done by a Japanese sub, uh, wasn't there that, that, um, knocked out a tunnel or a bridge on the Southern Pacific railroad, I think in California somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and, and the book I'm reading now, I mentioned last episode about the flying forts to, to, to really understand the history of what we were trying to do with a four engine bomber that everybody wanted to cancel the project on, uh, to be able to reach out. It was more for coastal defense. It was not a flying fort in the essence of an offensive posture and bombing, you know, the enemy heartland. It was more bombing these ships long before coastal artillery uh, had to go into action. Um, so the, the, you know, that, that posture of course naturally developed in the late thirties and of course into the second world war. But um, yeah, it, it's interesting to see how important, how vital our coastal defense uh, really was. And it's just such a back, 
index page, um, you know, in history uh, of the Second World War and how many folks, you know, it took um, to man those battle stations all along our coast. It's, it's an interesting, uh, con- an interesting thing to think of. You know, it's funny, a lot of us growing up, and especially in the smaller towns, and every town I think was a little different. When I was growing up in Grove City, the suburbs, it was every Wednesday at noon, you would hear the going off. Yeah. And, and it's like, why Why do they do that? That's just carryover from when they deployed that stuff as, air, you know, potential air raid sirens during the war. And they just carried them over, and now they just use them for whatever local potential emergency situation they just test them out like i said back when i was growing up it was every wednesday at noon you know when it was noon on wednesday when you heard the uh, air raid sirens going off it's pretty crazy just little things like that we don't even think of anymore because now it'll just be no- notifications through your cell phone get under your right. couch <laughs> so when are you heading back home uh a week from today are you going to make any stops on the way back or are you just going to make the long haul uh- yeah, I got to get back to the wife and kiddos. That's for sure. So you so, made the uh, you made the trip by yourself. Yeah, I'm a fighter pilot for two weeks, guys. Nice. Mm. That's yeah, a long yeah. drive by yourself. Well, it's like I said, I did I did 19 hours the first day. Wow. Uh, to make just to make the second day a, a short 10 hour trip, but you know I I haven't been back here in a while. You know, Walking Point was supposed to have the big premiere in Asbury Park, New Jersey, and that was scheduled two months after COVID uh, started. So this is my first opportunity back. And, you know, my wife knows that I, I kind of, I needed a little bit of family time, yeah. um, you know, with my brother and sisters and my uncles and aunts and everybody. This is where the cop said is, you know, this is where we started when my great grandfather was stationed at the Philadelphia Navy Yards, you know, in the Navy eons ago. So this is the history. This is where we come from. And um, it, it's always nice to come back. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna hightail at home and, and plan a trip next year uh, with with all of us again because you know with with all four kiddos it's mm-hmm. a bit of logistics to make the trip but we're gonna we're gonna make it work. Well, as we get older, it's so hard for everyone to get together, with the exception right. of unfortunately funerals and or weddings. And like my brother lives in Vegas, my sister lives in Kentucky. It's only a 17 hour drive here, but you know with gas prices and work and just life going on, it's, it's hard to hard to make that travel. I remember before I moved my daughter down here after she graduated high school, she lived in Columbus, Ohio, which is two and a half hours from where my mom lives, which is 17 hours from here. And so I was taking her home at the end of the school year. Cause she's, she still lived with her mom at the time. And so at the end of the summer school year was getting to start. And so I was going to, eh, I'll just drive up to my mom's house. It's a 14 hour drive. We'll crash there the night. She can visit with grandma and then I'll drop her off the next day. My Firebird at the time wouldn't make the travel, so I took my my fleet van for my computer company. Long story short, took it to get the oil change. We left at midnight, drove and drove, and then we kind of stopped outside of Georgia and slept for a little bit, and then it was like in the middle of August. Long story short, it was so hot that apparently when I took to get my oil change, the high school kids at the oil changing place filled my tires to max capacity instead of leaving them five to six pounds of pressure underneath. And so all that driving in the August heat in Georgia, the first tire blew, didn't pop, just blew the tread off, just overinflated. Driving down the interstate fleet van, my daughter's sitting back. So I get out and like, what the hell? Put the spare tire on call. My dad said, hey, uh, tire just blew out. Don't know why. But when we get to uh, Kentucky, the spare tire is not going to make a round trip 2,000 miles, a spare tire. So we made plans for me to go to Walmart or whatever and get a new tire. No, no problem. Hit the road. 30 minutes later, kaboom. What oh. the? Almost slid off. I'm like, did that spare tire pop? Went and looked. No, it was a different tire. Like, mother. So now I'm outside of nowhere, Georgia, on a Sunday. Middle of August is like 5.45 p.m. Get roadside service. They tow us to a local Walmart. Luckily, the manager was nice enough to stay work late to replace two tires on my van i get to kentucky my dad texts me the next morning he's like do me a favor go out and check the uh tire pressure on the two tires that did not blow up and that's when we discovered oh they're maxed out so we obviously were never able to prove it but my point is that 13 hour drive turned into a 21 hour odyssey so i know (laughs) what you were like 
minus the anxiety of almost having your car go off the road twice of making that 19-hour drive by yourself. That's a long haul. That's a lot of coffee and rest stops. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't make a rest stop till I need fuel. That's just how it is. And yeah. Ate breakfast and lunch on the road. Like I said, I got to got to Memphis in about uh, 10, 10 hours, and it was time for chow at the at the Cracker Barrel, and then took off all the way across Tennessee. Got almost to Virginia. I wanted to get past the. Yeah, you, know, you lose an hour heading east, so all I right. got past you know Eastern Standard Time. Got into that. It was about zero one. It's okay. I'm good. I got a I got a proposed um, addition to your trip. If you have the ability to take a few more days off, you ever been to Bath, Maine? Maine, yeah, short, uh, it's short I travel. Had a layover in Bangor, Maine, on my way to the to the big sandbox, but not. Well, you may want to may want to call the wife, call the work, say you're going to need an extra week off because you're going to Bath, Maine. Dateline June nineteenth, twenty twenty two. The christening of the naval destroyer on Saturday highlighted the sacrifices of two generations. The ship's namesake killed in World War II and another Marine who died more than 60 years later. The future USS Bazalone bears the name of the Marine who was awarded the Medal of Honor before his death on Iwo Jima. So they're just now christening that bad boy up in, in Bath, Maine. I'm not sure if it's still docked there or not. but uh, Yeah, well... I, I actually thought about today, before I headed to Long Beach, I was thinking about going up to Raritan to see John Bassalone's statue again. Uh, Raritan, New Jersey is a beautiful area up near uh, Princeton. And, uh, you know, the statue just, it's an amazing statue. Uh, I've been there a couple times. Um, if I had somebody to ride along that uh, hadn't seen it, I, I may have done it. But I'm, I'm glad I went to Maritime Museum instead. But, yeah, that's another... Um, another recommendation if I'll, you're in new jersey i'll say this guys and, and you, you probably did the right choice on that jeff but for years after the pacific came out we used to get a an invitation from the folks in raritan to the john Bassalone parade yeah and always i feel you know now that i've re-engaged with all this world war ii stuff i don't get it anymore and i feel bad that every year i just throw it in the trash you know but yeah. every year man those people were good as gold they would invite my family and me to that parade and you know, I, I never went, but yeah, um, I missed it by one week last time I was there and I didn't even know they did it. I just was talking to one of the locals and she's like, oh, you should have been here last week. We did our John Bassalone days. Like, what? Oh. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. The, you can tell the people of Raritan are super proud. When you're out there, you're taking pictures with it or whatever. Folks drive by, they're honking horns like, that's our boy. <laughs> they yell out yeah, the yeah, I've man. heard that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, super cool. So, well, uh, yeah. might I suggest that during your long drive home, if you want to entertain yourself, maybe around three in the morning, just uh, put on your aviators. I know you're going to turn the brights on, you won't be able to see, but put on that, that May West vest and that hat and just drive and look at every semi driver like, hi. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> Pretend like you're just flying a B forty seven and fighting. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> just look out the window at your cup of coffee. Hi! Right. Just keep on. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of a story. My dad was on Harley's, you know, his whole life, right? And he would actually going down the interstate on his big Harley dresser. He would actually scoot back onto the back seat, nice, and you know, just leave it going and, and put his arms out like this, like he's holding the driver from nobody there. People <laughs> would go by and just wave. <laughs> <laughs> that's great oh man i had white line yeah. so i had white line fear so bad i could have sworn i saw world war ii pilot driving a dodge ram <laughs> <laughs> that's when i knew i had to put the no-dos away oh, it's about that time hey henry yeah. what you reading i am about 150 pages into ian toll's second volume mm -hmm. of uh the pacific war trilogy really enjoying that and I know um, you and I are both the same. We, we're both looking forward to getting our copies of uh, the book that Jared was on last week talking about. Yes. You got to tune in for that podcast, Jeff. Uh, we had the author. Jared was back on, and his new book is about uh, Spears, and that's coming out. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You guys are getting a copy, and I'm not? I didn't What's say, up with I'm this? Not, I didn't say we didn't buy them. I'm just saying we went and ordered them, and we got copies coming, and we're looking... We're looking down to reading those too, but uh, yep. 
I'm reading this fatal dive. What are you reading? Are you reading anything in between your uh before you hopped in the truck and headed on east? I mean, besides all my schoolwork. Uh yeah, I'm you're still, still on the Caden book. Didn't you say you're still reading? I'm still on the Caden book. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Caden, yeah. wasn't he the dude that helped Saburo Sakai write Samurai? Yes. That guy, yes. man, he's prolific. I, I think I have the flying force, but if I don't, I want to get it. Oh, man, you should. Yeah. And I didn't realize uh, I've never seen the movie. I see it come up a lot. Uh, mm. uh, the War Lover. No. Heard of um, it. Oh, gosh. What's this? Uh, Steve McQueen. Yeah. I think Steve yeah. McQueen's in it. So Caden actually uh, was co-piloted one of the 17s that they flew over for the filming of it. I think there no was kidding. three or four fortresses that left from America, went over to, I think they filmed it in England. And uh, he talks about it in the book. So he kind of prides himself as flying in the very last formation of B-17s, you know, that flew, you know, overseas. Wow. Uh, in the, I want to say early 60s, 61, 62. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Theater release was October 25th, 1962. Uh, started- I, I remember seeing that when I was a kid. I just remember a scene of Steve McQueen, like in the shot up cockpit, like the control columns just jostling like that and he's trying to hold it steady i may not be thinking of the right movie steve mcqueen uh, robert wagner but yeah uh 47 percent on rotten tomatoes but yep that came out in 62 that's back when you had i guess is martin caden i guess he's long since passed away Uh, i'm i'm assuming so yeah 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 i may have that book i gotta check i know obviously i've got samurai but yeah. So, uh, you guys have any plugs or anything you got coming up? Do you want to get out there? I'm going to leave it. Um, nothing this time. I actually have something coming up on the 26th. I will be on Sarah, the history chicks behind, yeah. um, behind the histories podcast. And then she's going to be coming back on our show. Cause we asked her to come back on to give us, her uh, version of the oral, the oral history of the USS Indianapolis, because as we found out the last time she was on the show, that was like her little bugaboo that just you know bit her, because we all have our own little thing that we're into, and we found out she's into the USS Indianapolis, and so she's coming on on the 26th, so catch that, and I will be on her podcast this Thursday, um, the 23rd, I think 9.30 uh, Eastern Time, as normal. And so we have those things coming down the pike. And a new addition to the site, and Jeff, you weren't here last week, and um, you may want to email me links. Now, if you go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, you can see the appearances link, and that is where we will share our appearances on other other websites, other projects, other videos. And I think right now, if you go there, you can see links with Henry on a couple episodes of World War II TV, and then we have Jeff's appearance on the um, Behind the History podcast with Sarah. And so as we get more and more um, links to add there, you guys can find it. It's just a quick way to view us on other people's projects. And so, as I said, right now, it's a new page on our website. We have the three appearances of Henry on World War II TV and then Jeff's appearance on Behind the Page with Sarah. And then I'll add mine this week. And Jeff, if you have any other links of past projects you want to add to that page, just send them to us and we'll keep that page going. And that is the best way for you guys to support the show. You can find our link on Patreon. You can find our link to our YouTube channel. Um, you know, you can sign up for Patreon. It's a dollar a month. If you want to help support the cause, we have two other platforms too, but I mean, two other tiers as well, but we'd be more than happy if you just sign up for the dollar a month. Um, we have t-shirts for sale. As you see, I got a t-shirt on. Henry has a t-shirt on. Jeff usually has one on as well. You can purchase those from our website. And, um, but the best way, the easiest way, and the cheapest way for you to support the show is just share us with a friend, whether it's through Facebook, uh, verbally, send somebody a text message, share a link from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, however you listen to the podcast or directly from our website. And I think that is going to wrap it up for this episode of On the Road with Jeff Copsetta. You guys have anything else you want to put in there before we wrap it up? Uh, no. So did you mention that So next Monday is when Sarah's coming on? Uh, the twenty. Um, 23rd, I'm on hers, the 26th of July. I'm sorry. Okay, the 20- perfect. Yeah, because we wanted it close to the anniversary, but obviously we got uh, July 3rd weekend, the holiday. So um, she looked at her calendar and we figured the 26th will be the closest date to the anniversary that works, that doesn't step on holidays and whatnots. 
Perfect. Yeah, I will. Uh, I will be somewhere in Tennessee next Tennessee, Monday evening. Tennessee. I will not be able to, to hang out. Now, are you going through Knoxville? Are you going through Nashville? What part of Tennessee are you traveling through? All three. I forty. Oh uh, yeah. See, I always go north through Tennessee, so I always go through Chattanooga. That's I've never been. Uh, I've never seen uh, Nashville. I've never seen any of those areas. It's it's pretty. Yeah. That's about two and a half hours north of me. Yeah. Yeah. At Nashville. Which, Nashville is. Yeah, I'm in Birmingham. I'm actually thinking about stopping in Nashville because that's the halfway point. Hmm. I went. I went further this last time, but I'll. Uh, Man, I'll, if I'll something happened. <laughs> yeah, do that because I mean, if something, if something God knows, you know, I don't want your travel plans anything untoward to happen. But if you, you know, if you get into an emergency and you end up further south, man, I'm yeah, I'm two and a half hours south of that. You know, well, it may be three, but not it's not that far. You know, if your Keurig runs out of water or anything, Henry. Will be there for you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Henry, I got to pee. Okay, see ya. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh, we're still live, huh? But, yeah, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. On that note, thank you guys so much, and we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) 